You're listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org. Psalm 41. Blessed is the one who considers the poor. In the day of trouble, the Lord delivers him. The Lord protects him and keeps him alive. He is called blessed in the land. You do not give him up to the will of his enemies. The Lord sustains him on his sickbed. In his illness, you restore him to full health. As for me, I said, O Lord, be gracious to me. Heal me, for I have sinned against you. My enemies say of me in malice, when will he die and his name perish? And when one comes to see me, he utters empty words while his heart gathers iniquity. When he goes out, he tells it abroad. All who hate me whisper together about me. They imagine the worst for me. They say, a deadly thing is poured out on him. He will not rise again from where he lies. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. But you, O Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up, that I may repay them. By this I know that you delight in me. My enemy will not shout in triumph over me. But you have upheld me because of my integrity and set me in your presence forever. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen you have spoken to us and uh, you've not left us in the dark um, but your word gives light it tells us who you are who we are uh, what our purpose is and what's wrong with us and how to fix it and I pray oh Lord that you would now really nourish our souls on your word that we would eat of the eternal food that is Jesus and we would know him better and we would be ready and capable of serving you O Lord and walking in the grace that you give us so open these uh, words to us O Lord give us understanding uh, that we may really love you and really trust you we ask in Jesus name amen most of us many of us don't really like to new things we like the old, the tried and true. Um, you probably know at least one family member in your, or friend, family member, who whenever, you know, if you go out to eat somewhere, if you have the opportunity to have pizza, they always want a plain cheese pizza, right? They don't want to put on something new. They want the ingredients that they've always enjoyed. You know, when I was young, if we had pasta, I just wanted pasta and a little butter. You know, don't put sauce on it. Don't don't put mushrooms on it, nothing, no meat. Just keep it simple. And I would do it again and again and again as a kid. Um, even more of us are less likely to want to trailblaze with difficult circumstances. You know, very few of us want to be the first person to go through really hard suffering, you know, in our family and be like, yeah, that, that, was, that was great, you know. Uh, many of us can, in fact, remember like the first time you went through real serious pain. You know, it, it registers on your mind. I can remember one of my most traumatic, uh, painful experiences as a kid was getting dumped out of the wagon that my dad was pulling as he tried to go up over the curb and gashing open my chin uh, and just kind of bleeding everywhere. I can remember screaming in the bathroom as my parents tried to clean out the cut uh, rather vividly. Um, but any number of things, you can remember 
those first really intense moments of suffering or hardship that you've gone through. You know, it could be the loss of a job, uh, a long or severe experience of illness the first time you ever went through something like that, or maybe deep depression, uh, or the death of a family member, someone close to you, those sorts of things, the first time you go through it, it hits you hard and you can really remember it. Uh, suffering of any sort is difficult and often suffering can feel very much like we are alone. And that is in fact one of the blessings of the Psalms, one of the reasons God gave us the Psalms is so that we don't go through hardships and suffering alone. And in fact, we have here in Psalm 41 another lament, another hard time for David uh, that God is giving to us so that we can know God in the midst of suffering and hardship and how to handle it. And so this morning, what I'd like to do uh, is look at three things. The first two things are going to actually pertain to Psalm 41. I want to look first at the suffering um, I think that I might have, there we go, foes and suffering is the first thing we'll look at, and then we'll look at blessedness. Uh, and then the last thing we'll do is we'll jump to, because this psalm is quoted by Jesus in John chapter 13, and we'll, that will be our concluding uh, section that we'll look at. But one thing uh, to explain why we're looking at the suffering first is, um, I think there's one other slide here uh, that has the structure of the psalm. So you notice that the psalm actually follows this pattern. It opens with the, David talks about blessedness in the first three verses. And then he has a plea in verse, or confession in verse four. And then the center section, verses five through nine, deal with foes and opposition, as well as a friend in verse nine. And then again, he returns in verse 10. He confesses his sin and then finally, verses 11 through 13, again, reflect on, and we get the word blessed again in these last few verses. So there's this structure, and so what I want to do this morning is look at that center section first, and then we'll look at the, the blessedness part second before we jump to uh, John. So hopefully that will make sense. That's why we're not starting in verse 1, we're starting in the middle, because because David has organized this psalm to highlight the suffering in the middle, but he's going to conclude with blessing, and he's also going to start with blessing. So, let's look at David's foes in opposition. So, real quick side note, David is sick. You know, he says, Lord, heal me. So, the situation is David has some, some sort of illness that has overcome him, and not only is he sick, but he's got people that are kind of coming to him who aren't, you know, actual uh, buddies. Um, so he says in verse 5, uh, he's facing this danger in his illness. He's got enemies, verse 5. My enemies are coming to him or talking about him in verse 5. Uh, and these are not just, you know, you know, David's not exaggerating here. He's, he's not just being like, well, these people, we just don't get along in life, you know. He's not talking about some neighbor that they kind of have some property line issues or whatever the case may be. He, he's got people that hate him in verse 7. Uh, and one of the things that David focuses on here, these are particularly, uh, his enemies express their animosity to him sort of in a veiled sort of way. Notice their speech is what David focuses on in verse 5. These people speak evil of David. Um, and particularly the evil that they're speaking of 
uh, is not sort of like, oh, we kind of hope that maybe he'll fall, break his arm or something. No, they can't wait till he dies. These, are, these people really want to see him done in. Uh, most of us don't have enemies like that. You know, most people, it's just someone who's angry with you. But these people want David dead, and they can't wait for him to die. Uh, in fact, David says that they speak evil with malice, right? They, they have absolutely evil intentions. Uh, and, and they want to know, when will he die and his name perish? Now, this whole talk of his name perishing, it's not simply so like, you know, some people are just content to have their enemies bumped off, Right? But then there are people, like these people, that not only want to see David dead, but everyone just completely forget about him. No positive thoughts about David. You know, we want his memorial funeral service to be one in which there's nothing good that can be said about this guy. We want him completely, completely snuffed out. That's what these folks want. But then here's the other thing that's interesting about these enemies. In verse 6, they're very duplicitous. And when one comes to see me, you know, he makes a little hospital visit. Here I am, David. He utters empty words. He means like, oh, I, you know, I'm certain you'll, you'll beat this thing. You'll be fine in just a few days, right? But while in his heart he gathers iniquity. What he really, really wants, we already know what he wants. He can't wait to hear the doctor say, his pulse stopped. He's gone. And in fact, we lost all his records. That's what this guy wants. And so then he goes out after he has his hospital visit with David, and he's like, hey, everyone, it's looking really bad. They're gossiping, right? And they're whispering together. They're enjoying the slow demise of David and their deep, deep desire that sits behind all their speech is that David will die. And in fact, so verse 5, you see, when will he die? They're kind of wondering, when is his name going to perish And then in verse 8, it escalates, right? They're confident. They say, a deadly thing is poured out on him. He will not rise again from where he lies, right? They're actually, in verse 8, they're now like actually kind of excited, right? Not only are they hoping he's going to die in verse 5, but now we're confident he's not going to make it. It looks bad for him. And finally, we see that deep down in verse 7, that these guys... They, they are imagining, we're told, the worst for David. All who hate me whisper together about me and they imagine the worst for me. I don't know if you've ever had a situation where someone did something to you that really hurt you and instead of being like, oh, I'm certain they were just having a bad day. No, you start thinking like, I wonder how things could go poorly for that person or how maybe I could show them up, how I could put them down. That's what these folks, they're, they're imagining, like they're, they're, they're thinking about all the creative ways that David might suffer and die. These are ruthless people. These are not sort of mere elementary school bullies, right? These, these are much more like folks who are ready and willing to take David's life in political struggles in all likelihood. And you would think, it just can't possibly get worse for David, could it? I mean, you're sick, you're dying, and you got enemies like this. How could life possibly get any harder? Well, it can. And in fact, it may seem that it gets way worse when verse 9, right? Because David gets betrayed by a friend. 
No one's worried when their enemies betray me. I mean, it's almost impossible for your enemy to actually betray you. But a friend can betray you. And David says, even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. Betrayal is, is one of the worst things that you can experience in life. Uh, almost anybody who has experienced the betrayal of a friend uh, or a family member can tell you that there's very few things that are just as excruciating as having a, a, someone so close to you turn on you. And in fact, if you watch a movie or read books, you'll often have these situations where the good guys are all holed up in like some fortress or uh, you know, maybe they're like in a, a spaceship that's sort of shutting down and they're surrounded by enemies. But the moment that's most frightening is the moment in the movie when they realize actually there's someone in our group that's been telling the enemy our weaknesses. And so then the, the psychological danger becomes way worse and everyone's like, who is it? Who, who's, who's giving out information? It, has, it, it renders this kind of psychological impact of like, who can I really, really trust? There's nothing safe because often with your friend, you've shared things or a family member. They know your most vulnerable places. They know the things that you feel most insecure about and they have weapons against you that your enemies may not have access to. And the emotional impact is way, way worse and way, way deeper when that friend turns on you. In fact, the, the Hebrew language here for friend is actually my man of peace. The person that you're supposed to have peace with. The person that there's not supposed to be any hostility, no danger. My man of peace has turned on me. The one whom I trusted. The one whom I thought I could lean on when things got hard. And here's the thing. Today, you know, we value friendship. But in the ancient world, friendship was one of the greatest things that you could achieve. And to have a friend betray you was very, very terrible. David and Jonathan were great friends and it's lifted up in scripture as a wonderful relationship. And there are other stories throughout the ancient world of great iconic friendships. Um, for those of you who've done any reading in the ancient Near East, you can think of the friendship of Gilgamesh and Enkidu. You know, Babylonian names. Um, but here's the thing. This friend, so friendship is highly elevated, and David says that this friend ate my bread. I mean, today, you don't just have anybody over for dinner in general, but back in the ancient world, families were the ones that ate together. It was your family that ate, and often kings would feed people who were close allies to them and it often demonstrated loyalty. If you ate at the king's table, you were loyal to the king. But David is saying, so you who pretended to be loyal to me, you've turned on me. You ate my bread, and now you're going to lift your heel against me. And this image of lifting the heel is one like, I, I'm, I've never uh, been a very flexible person. So like the idea of like being able to kick someone in the head has never been a, something imaginable, like karate kind of stuff. But here's the thing is that David is laying down because he's sick. And you can just imagine, it doesn't take much to lift your leg on a sick person and just stomp him. 
And it's just gruesome because it's not like a fair fight. Kicking someone in the head when they're down and when they're sick isn't fair. And doing it even more so when you're a friend who's let into the hospital room when everyone else is not allowed and you kick them then is even worse. You just can't imagine the intensity of the pain. It is psychological and it is a physical type of pain that David is here describing, the worst type of backstabbing. So David is surrounded by enemies and even betraying friends. And so that's the danger in which David finds himself. And this is the excruciating kind of suffering that we see in the Bible. But David also then talks about blessedness. He talks about blessedness. So this is the first and last sections of Psalm 41. But let's look at the very beginning of Psalm 41, verse 1. David makes a statement about the blessed person. And actually, there's only one thing that the blessed person does in this psalm. And that is that they consider the poor. They consider the poor. Now, the word here for consider has to do with sort of uh, the wise person who sizes up a situation and evaluates. It gives real attention as to, okay, what can I do here? What's the best course of action? This is a person that's not simply like, hmm, there are poor people in the world today, and then moves on. That's not the kind of considering that we're talking about. You know, we can use the word consider rather flippantly. This is like, I'm going to think about what this person needs. What, how can I, what is the best way that I can help this person? That's what we mean by consider. And here the word for poor isn't super surprising. It does, in fact, mean poor. This is not just like someone who's having a bad day. This is someone who is without, someone who is weak, someone who is helpless, lacking the resources that they need. And there's any number of places you can go throughout scripture where this is a constant refrain that the, that the blessed person, the righteous person considers the poor. Because I, there's this list upon list of verses that you could read. For example, Proverbs 19.17. Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord and the Lord will repay him for his deed. Or here, listen to Job 31. I think that there should be a slide here. Job 31, starting in verse six, uh, 16, sorry. Job says, if I have withheld anything from the poor, that the, and the poor, that's the same word we have here in our psalm, or have caused the eyes of the widow to fail, or have eaten my morsel alone, interestingly enough, eating alone, and the fatherless has not eaten of it, from my mouth the fatherless grew up with me as with a father, and from my mother's womb I guided the widow. If I have seen anyone perish for lack of clothing or the needy without covering, and it goes on, Job's, he's setting up, if I have done any of these things, and then he goes on to say, may my body fall apart is essentially what he says. Go read Job 31. But this is the kind of consideration we're talking about here. Job has given consideration to the kids in his neighborhood that don't have food, and so he has them over for dinner, right? The widows on his block, Job is thinking about, what do they need? How can I help them? So that is what we see here in Psalm 41. And as a church, this is, we want to be those people that consider the poor. 
amongst ourselves and out and around us. We don't want to be those who neglect and bulldoze those who are weaker and in need. And so David just very bluntly says, blessed is this person. They consider the poor. And he's full stop. And it's easy to want to neglect those because that will require time. It may require our money, our energies, consideration of this magnitude. But then contrast real quick. This attitude of the blessed person who considers the poor. In contrast, David's enemies, what are they considering, right? What is the worst possible thing that can happen to this guy? I can't wait till he dies on his hospital bed. The contrast of desires and considerations is very, very striking. The blessed person considers, what can I do? How can I help? How can I get this person off the hospital bed? Completely, completely different mentalities. But we would be uh, mistaken to stop there and say that that is all that blessedness is. In fact, if you read through the psalm, most of it has to do with the Lord does so look let's look at the rest of verses one through three the first thing that the lord does is that he delivers this person he delivers this person in the day of trouble and i think that that delivers in the day of trouble is the overarching theme the next two things explain how the lord delivers how does the lord deliver someone this blessed person. Well, he delivers him by protecting him and by healing him. Look at verse two. The Lord protects him and keeps him alive. You do not give him up to the will of his enemies. And then in verse two, we're told that the Lord heals. The Lord heals. Now, there's actually a very striking phrase at the end of three. Uh, so it says, the Lord sustains him on his sickbed, and in his illness, you restore him to full health. The, the language there is actually that the Lord turns his bed, which would make, doesn't make a whole lot of sense. What does it mean by turning someone's bed? It means one of two things. It means that the Lord, when he's sick, is either making the bed like Every day, he's changing the bed. He's making sure that this guy has a nice hospital bed. He's taking care of him. God is playing the nurse that keeps the, the sheets clean while the guy is sick. Or it's very possible that the Lord is there beside him until he's better, and he flips the bed over, and so he's out of the sickness, and he's back to normal life. One of those two things. But either way, the Lord is right there through the whole thing. Because notice that the Lord's deliverance doesn't mean that he doesn't let nothing bad happen. But he's there through the whole thing. And he will see the blessed person to the good end. In, totally in contrast with the enemies. And these are the very things that David does in fact need, right? Right? In this psalm, David is reflecting on the blessedness of the way the Lord treats this particular person because these are the very things that David himself needs, right? He's sick, David is sick, and he asks the Lord to heal him. And he also has enemies that are just crowding around him, and he needs protection from enemies. So David says, he says in verse 4, 
you know, Lord, heal me. Lord, heal me. And now, he says, heal me in the context of confessing his sin. One of the first things that David does is he acknowledges, look, Lord, I have sinned and I need you to deal with my sin. So often, we often want God to just take care of our immediate circumstances. Just get the bad guys away, get me better, and I'll, and, you know, and I'll cruise along. No, David first is like, Lord, I know there are things that I have done that are wrong, and I'm confessing those. Please deal with my sin first before you deal with anything else. So he asked the Lord to heal him, and in the midst, he's asking for the Lord to forgive him. So we don't want to merely, when we think about blessedness, just think about our material circumstances. We want to think about our sin and addressing our sin because blessing comes from dealing with the wrong things that we have done. And then in verse 12, David is able to grow in confidence. He knows that the Lord has restored delight in him because my enemy will not shout in triumph over me. And not only that, not only will his enemy not triumph over him, but he'll be able to come into the presence of God and enjoy God's presence because he has also dealt with his sin. So simultaneously freedom from his enemies, but also the positive of being able to once again be restored and connected to God. Now, two quick things. There's two kind of odd things when you read this psalm. One is that David mentions his integrity. And you're like, well, how does he even say he has integrity? He just confessed that he has sinned. So that's one issue in this blessed section. And then the other thing is in verse 10, he's like, raise me up so that I can repay them. And you're like, what on earth? Didn't you just ask for forgiveness, man? Like, and now you just want to go slam these people? It seems kind of strange. So, integrity. This actually, I don't think is too difficult to address because I don't think that here by integrity, David means... I'm completely innocent and have never done anything wrong. I'm completely righteous, O Lord. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying I'm guiltless. But he is, in addressing his sin, able to act with integrity. If you read 1 John 1, it says that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So God can make us pure is one. But then in that same chapter, John says that if we say that we do not have sin, we say that God is a liar. And so essentially, you become duplicitous or lack integrity by denying sin. So by, in fact, admitting that you have sin and confessing sin and dealing with it the way God wants you to deal with it, it actually enables integrity. Does that make sense? Now, the, the whole thing about repaying your enemies it does seem rather bizarre. Um, and it actually seems, if you read David's life, it's actually instructive because David's actually quite gracious to a lot of the people that do bad stuff to David. So if you read his life, you realize that he's not someone who's on a vengeance kick. But it does seem that David held the office of king in which one of the things he had a responsibility to do was deal with justice issues. And so he is asking God to restore him so that he can address injustices that are being at play here. Seems to be what David is asking for. Not just like, give me, give me the, uh, give me the carte blanche uh, uh, or the, the blank check, O oh Lord. 
that I might just go and mow down my enemies. That is not what David is going for. But he had an office that required justice. If those things don't make sense, there's the Q&A afterwards, and we can talk more about that. So, David has terrible enemies, but the blessed life is, in fact, the opposite of what he's initially experiencing, which is why he's struggling. But here, this whole psalm, actually, God, Christ, is going to actually quote from this psalm. So what I want to do now is jump to John, the Gospel of John, chapter 13, and I want to read to you some sections from it just to give you a little bit of context uh, so that we have a sense from which Jesus takes these words on his lips. So John 13, uh, starting in verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from the supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around his waist. Now jump to verse 12. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garment and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who has sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you obey them. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Now, it's sometimes surprising how Jesus quotes this. You know, he just takes a snippet of the psalm. Uh, and it's sometimes it takes a little bit of reflection as to why is Jesus quoting this psalm right here and right now. And so one of the things that I'd like, to, I read a chunk of this so that we can see the context because I think that it will show us some of the things why Jesus is right now going to quote from Psalm 41. And I think that it conveys actually a deeper power or significance to what Judas is doing to Jesus. Now, one of the things is there's a difference between how Jesus quotes this uh, psalm. One of the things he doesn't say is, my friend in whom I trusted. The other thing that's interesting is that Jesus quotes this before he's betrayed, whereas in Psalm 41, David seems to be on the receiving end. He's shocked. My friend, what have you done to me? Whereas Jesus is actually anticipating it. He sees it coming. 
Because John wants us to remember that Jesus is God. In one sense, the, the betrayal wasn't a surprise. And you might think, well, that's what you would think actually would lessen the pain, right? You see it coming. So you can kind of be mentally prepared. I, I don't think that that is why John is pointing us to this fact that Jesus, he's pointing at that Jesus is in control. That Jesus is, in fact, intentionally going through with his own death. And, and we'll get to that in a moment. But I don't think that the fact that Jesus sees it coming makes it any less painful. In fact, sometimes there are things you would say, I w- I'm glad I didn't know beforehand. You know, because you can struggle when you see something hard coming. So I think that Jesus is, in fact, he knows it's coming, but it doesn't make it less painful, the suffering and the betrayal less painful. But here are some things that are worth noting, some similarities. Jesus is in the middle of Passover. We saw in verse 1, they're having the Passover feast. This, is, this was like, this is the biggest celebration that the, the Jewish Israelite people had. And it was a family meal. This was, you, you celebrate with family and you remember what God has done for you. What God has done for your people. For years back, God has rescued you. And he's brought you into this special community. And you eat it together and you remember together. And here's the thing, Judas didn't just eat one meal with Jesus, let alone this special meal. He's eaten tons of meals with Jesus for three years. He's seen Jesus, he's heard all of Jesus' teaching. And actually this language of ate my bread in here when John, when Jesus quotes the gospel, or I'm um, sorry, Psalm 41, is the same language used in John 6. He's recalling the language when Jesus fed the 5,000, when Jesus says, eat, of, eat my flesh. Judas has seen this incredible miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, and he's heard Jesus say, you need me, you need to eat me. So the intensity is ratcheting up. But then here's the other thing. Jesus says, the one who ate my bread, right? So There's this intimate connection that David also had with his friend. And Judas has that similar connection with Jesus here at this special meal. But then here's the other thing that's striking, and here's a difference. David is sick in Psalm 41, and he's lying down when his friend lifts his heel against him. Jesus has just washed the feet of his disciples. An act of humbling himself that most people would never have imagined in, in his day. It, it, was, it, was, it was the thing that only the lowest servants and slaves would do. It's unimaginable. So you imagine Jesus kneeling at the feet of Judas. And so the image of striking someone with your heel in this moment is even more ridiculous. The betrayal is even worse because Jesus has voluntarily humbled himself in front of Judas, washed the guy's dirty feet, and, and the image is Judas strikes out right at the moment when Jesus is most humbled and most vulnerable in an attempt to actually serve and care for him. It's a, it's a, the contrast is unbelievable and makes the betrayal all the worse. Now here's one other thing though that makes it even worse. 
In Psalm 41, they, we don't know for sure who is this friend that betrays David. We don't know. David got betrayed by a lot of people, actually. One of the people that they think it might be was a guy by the name of Ahithophel, who was the grandfather of Bathsheba. And if that's the case, you can actually sort of understand why the guy might have some reason to potentially betray David, if that's the case, right? Because David has, is not completely innocent in relationship to this guy. But Judas has no reason whatsoever to betray Jesus. He has no motive other than his simple love of money. He, he has no alibi to say, well, Jesus, you know, once said bad words about me. He hurt my feelings. He, he has nothing like that. There's no backstabbing. There is no blame he can lay on Christ. This guy is purely greedy. Purely greedy. And Jesus has washed his feet and he's going to strike out against Christ. So here's the thing. We have all suffered. You, you can't get through this life and not suffer. And some of us have suffered for our own dumb stuff. Christ has suffered purely for us. He has experienced some of the betrayals that we've experienced. But he's experienced them and has never deserved it. But he, does, he went through it, not only to pay for our sins, but he can actually say, I know what you have been through. I, have, I know exactly, actually, if anything, we can't ever say to Jesus, we know exactly what you've been through. Because we've deserved a lot of the junk that we've received. Christ never deserved any of it. And yet he went through it for you. And he can say, I know what it's like to be betrayed by a friend. I know what it's like to be betrayed by a family member. Christ knows what our suffering is like. But here's one thing that actually goes even further. In Psalm 41, verse 2, it says that God will not give up the blessed man to the desire of his enemies. And in verse 11, David says, By this I know that you are pleased with me because my enemy will not shout and triumph over me. That doesn't seem to happen to Jesus. His enemies actually seem to win. But that is actually because Jesus has enemies that he can fight that we have no shot at fighting. No shot without Jesus. There are two greater foes that Jesus is addressing beyond just people around him. In verse 1 of John 13, we know that it's time the Passover's come. And then, oh, I don't have the verse here. Somewhere at the beginning of John 13, it says that Satan enters Judas, right? Jesus has another enemy that he's targeting, that he's going to have to deal with, that, has been at, that he's after Jesus. And since Genesis 3.15, he's going to crush the head of the serpent. Jesus is going to go after, the, after Satan, but we don't know exactly how yet, right? We're still in the middle of the story. But there's another enemy that Jesus has to deal with that is going to seem to temporarily defeat Jesus. Now listen to these words by Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. 
For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits. Then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Psalm 2. Now verse 26, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. David, death was the power that David's enemies had over him, right? Christ actually, however, had the chance, unlike anyone in this room or ever, to actually defeat a foe that we would never be able to take on. And in fact, Christ has come. He's experienced all this garbage in order to deal with our sin and to defeat death. He's defeating enemies. It seems like he's defeated. He's conquered. But death is not going to be able to triumph and shout over Christ. Christ will get up because, because he is the blessed one. And actually, here's a side note. Psalm 41.1. Blessed is the man who considers the poor, right? Jesus says to Judas, go and do what you must do quickly, and Judas leaves. Here's what the disciples think when Judas gets up and leaves. Listen to this. This is from John 13. In verse 29, some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what you need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. Jesus was so commonly thinking of the poor that they just thought that Jesus... Jesus was sending Judas out to to help the poor again. Jesus is the blessed one, and the death, death is not going to triumph. His enemies will not defeat him. And so, let us conclude this sermon by looking at the very, very end of Psalm 41. Verse 13, it says, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. This is how book one of the Psalms ends. Psalm has five books. And it ends, every single one of those books is going to end with praise to the living God. Because for all the hardship that we go through, all the laments and all the sad songs that we sing to God in this life, they're moving us to the end, which is that God rescues us in Christ from death and from sin. And so our lives are moving towards praise. So let me just read to you how book two of Psalms ends. Blessed be the Lord, the God, the God of Israel, who alone works wonders. And blessed be his glorious name forever. And may the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. Book 3, 89, 52. Blessed be the Lord forever. Amen and amen. Book 4, Psalm 106, 48. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting even to everlasting forever. And let all the people say, Amen. Because he lives forever. He's not been triumphed over by death. And finally, book 5, Psalm 150, which the whole thing is praising God. Praise the Lord. Let everything, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. And so our lives, hopefully, are moving towards greater praise. Because Christ is undefeatable. He's undefeatable. And he's done it not because he was pressed down for something he did. It was because of what we did. And now he's alive forever and ever. And so let us praise God. Amen. Let us pray.
Lord Jesus, we praise you this morning because many of us are going through suffering right now. Who knows the hardships that if we were to count them up in this room, O oh Lord, we'd probably all sit down and cry because of the suffering that we've gone through. And we praise you, Lord Jesus, that you are working. Not only are you with us in the suffering, but you are moving everything towards the hope and praise that you deserve because you are making all things new. You're forgiving us our sins as we come to you in repentance. And I pray, O oh Lord, that you'd help us to have hope. And I pray that you would help us to be able to praise you wholeheartedly, even in the midst of suffering, and bring our suffering to you. So help us, Heavenly Father, we pray. Comfort those in this room who are suffering with the hope of Christ, I pray, Lord Jesus. Amen.
you may be seated. We want to take a few minutes and respond. Uh, the scriptures say that we should not just be hearers of the word, but doers only, and sometimes that helps to ask some questions. We always want to be a church that's open to questions. Um, we are not afraid of questions. That's how we learn. And so, um, yeah, I didn't see any on the live stream, and I will check my phone. I warned Justin last night that I had a whole bunch of them, so, because um, I have a lot of questions about the text. I think that's what preachers do, is they just have a lot of questions, so. Um, so, you can think about a question. I'll open it up here in just a few minutes, but uh, first of all, do you, do you have any sense of, like, what period of David's life this event is happening? Yeah, that, that is, um, I think that he's king. I don't know that you could say, pin it down to a particular point. Uh, psalm 55 is another psalm where David talks about a friend betraying him. Um, so, um, I, I, I mentioned in the sermon this guy, Ahithophel, who was a counselor to David, uh, many folks uh, and even Jewish tradition thinks that that's who that it is in this particular psalm, um, which is definitely a, a valid option. But I, I don't think that we know. Uh, I mean, one thing is David seems sick here. Um, so um, we, we don't get like a documentary of when David was sick or anything in the Bible for the most part. So it's, it's hard to know. But um, there's certainly plenty of candidates. Uh, David was betrayed by quite a number of people even his own son uh betrayed him so um so i guess in short i would say it might be ahithophel maybe his own son and it could be any number of other people but i would say we don't know for sure yeah it seems like that maybe there's someone in his court or in his family someone who's really leaning on yeah really close who's to him. now disgruntled with him or yeah grumbling about him and feeding uh, information to others um, I just noticed that, you know, like the physical sickness is an issue, um, but also it seems like what really bothers him is the relational. Like, it, 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 can you speak to that a little bit? Like, yeah. why, is, why, why is it that so, relational pain actually hurts and cuts deeper than, yeah. than physical pain does? Yeah, I think that actually, so the, yeah, the, the sickness here... Um, I don't think David is really all that bent out of shape about the sickness. Um, it's mostly because he's more vulnerable when he's sick, right? I mean, just if you think about anyone, like when you have a fever, you just don't want to deal with life in general. I mean, it's, you don't even need to be real, real sick. Um, so it's just, it's more like this is the moment right when his enemies and his friend betray him. It's like, okay, you can understand like if you betray somebody when they're at the height of their power and it won't hurt them so bad, right? If you turn on them a little bit. But to turn on someone when they're in need, you know, it just exasperates. So I don't think, I think you're right. I don't think that it's the illness that's like, man, this is, I you know, he's not bemoaning that he's sick, really. It is that he's vulnerable. It is that this is when his enemies, this is when his friend betrays him. Um, yeah, when he most is counting on. Yeah, and I do think that, honestly, probably most anyone in this room, if you were to give them the choice, you know, do you want to be, you know, suffer some real severe sickness or would you like to have you know someone who you really love and care for just kind of stab you in the back and i think anyone would say i'll take the sickness over that because the emotional spiritual psychological pain of betrayal is is so intense uh, it goes deeper than than illness really can um 
because it goes right to the core of who, who you are um, in so many ways. Yeah. I have a couple more, and then uh, after this one, I'll open it up here and then come back to one, uh, some more of mine. But, so he talks about eating together and how that made the betrayal worse. Mm-hmm. So that kind of connects to what we just talked about. But what is it about like being in someone's home, sitting on someone's couch, eating their food or whatever? Yeah. What is it about that that is sort of uniquely painful? Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I think, again, it has to do with the vulnerability. Uh, you know, you expect when, anyone when they sit down, like probably the dinner table is one of the places, safest places you can imagine in your home. Uh, and so you don't, you don't expect, and it's like kind of one of the quintessential terrible things is to have an argument over dinner, right? You know, like just, we just want to have peace in the home. Like, like let's not get into, you know, that eating together is a time when, you know, in one sense, you're also vulnerable. And so far as we're mortal, if we don't eat, we die, right? Like you need to eat. So you have to go to the drinking hall. So if, if that's a dangerous place for you, or if someone, you've let someone into your life really close to you and then you're just more vulnerable. Actually, in German culture, it's interesting. Uh, in, if you go to Germany, you, you have to have your hands above the table. You, you know, in America, we sit with, uh, often we'll put one hand down and eat with our one hand. Well, going back to the Middle Ages in Germany, uh, you put both hands on the table so that you, people could see you were unarmed because sometimes people would you know, if you have a knife or something underneath the table, that was bad. So my mom went over to visit her sister who was over there, and my mom put her hand under the table. And now it doesn't, it's obviously doesn't have anything to do with weapons, but it was like very offensive. So my mom's sister's like, Mimi, you know, get your hands up, you know. Um, but that's because like that's, it's, it's an expected place of safety. The other thing in the ancient world is that it was a means by which you made bonds. You, you actually built bonds with people, like you made covenants. You can read through the Old Testament. And so um, you would bind yourself together with someone through an oath, and then you would eat together. To bond, it's sort of like almost like a wedding ceremony. So it's like it's actually not just informally or accidentally being loyal. It's like saying, I will be loyal to you because I'm eating your food. So... Um, it's actually striking that Paul says in 1 Corinthians, when he's talking about the institution of the Lord's Supper, he says, on the night that Christ was betrayed. So the betrayal was such a striking feature at this meal that, you know, as Christians, we don't want to betray Christ by coming to the table uh, without recognizing what we're doing. Mm-hmm. Right, which is, yeah, there is implications then with the Lord's table as well, is that, uh, that is a deep thing because you are being bound together. You're coming to the Christ table. So God forbid we live in unrepentance. Mm-hmm. Like that we betray him in that way and we do, or that we speak in a grumbling yeah. manner about one yeah. another or, yeah. yeah, there is something about that. And, and I've experienced that, you know, uh, you know, I've been, I've, I've, I've seen, I've seen that happen before where the people that hurt, hurt me the deepest have been people that have been in our living room and know where my kids yeah. sleep and, yeah, yeah. You know, those, those hurt more, so I can understand that. Any questions out here? Yes, sir. I guess uh, in light of all the question, um, well, I think, I think one thing is that when you read the Psalms, 
I think one is that we, as we recognize reading Psalm 41 in light of Christ, that as Christians, we, we, we will suffer, you know? Like, I think to have the mentality that we're gonna suffer, and it might even be directly related to Jesus. And I'm certain that anyone who's come to Christ, uh, especially if, say, you didn't grow in a Christian home, like my mom didn't grow up in a Christian home, and she definitely experienced a lot of alienation for coming to Christ. Um, so that's one. Like, you can just expect, you know, there's, there's a, there's, in one of the Psalms, David says, my, my father and mother have forgotten me, but the Lord will not forget me. And I think that that's one of the other things is sometimes when we're caught between choosing, making choices in life, sometimes it'll feel like this way, if I go with Jesus on this, I might lose, I might lose family or friends, for example. Um, or if I make this kind of moral stand or something, you know, I might lose this job or whatever the case may be. And I think that we can, we're tempted to doubt in those moments that Jesus will be worth it. And I think that one of the things we have to see is, I mean, there's any number of things that we'll be expected to lose or deny ourselves in this life. And I think that if we don't think that Christ is with us and that Christ knows what it's like, we won't be able to actually say, I can give this up for Jesus. So I think that we have to steal our minds, not only that suffering is gonna come, but that Jesus is worth it and Jesus will be with us through it. Um, I think is kind of crucial. I, I, there's probably a, a lot of other things. I don't know if you can th think of other things. I definitely felt like this sermon, I didn't think a lot about, like, here are all these application points. Um, so those are two that come to my mind. I mean, I can definitely think of people that, in the end, they didn't choose Jesus because it didn't seem like that was, you could bank on Jesus, that the suffering was going to be worth it. Uh, I've just seen also plenty of people that the suffering seemed un unbelievable, but in the end, Jesus was worth it. Uh, so I think it's also a source of encouragement because some people in this room very well might be in a situation where you're going through something hard and you are wondering, is Jesus really worth this? Because suffering will make you ask pointed questions. Is this really worth it? Is this Christian thing really worth it that I'm going through this, whatever it may be? And in the end, yes, it is worth it. Jesus is worth it. And so I think these psalms in Christ, using these psalms, gives us that hope. Yeah, that's good. Any other questions? Yeah, blessed is the one who considers the poor. That might be an application, too, is that yeah. sometimes we get our eyes on, on ourselves. Yeah. And uh, I was thinking of the Good Samaritan that, you know, the priest and the Levite passed Pass the man in the ditch by, yeah, because they had they had things to do, and this was not their responsibility. Yeah, they have rights; they're not supposed to be touching dead people, and so yeah. they better preserve preserve their rights, preserve their in, in you know preserve their um, image, and uh, and it was the Samaritan, yeah, who laid himself down, yeah, who inconvenienced himself. Yeah, I would and, say uh, that that actually that opening verse was a challenge for me because I do think that we. Uh, the churches that I think we would probably most likely associate with, I think feel this tension between concern for the poor and say, under knowing the Bible and holding to the Bible. Like in American history, there is this kind of split that goes like some people care for the poor and then other people care about the Bible and doctrine or whatever. And I think that as Christians, we have to fight to hold to both, right? We want 
Because in the end, I think that you won't ultimately be able to care for people if you don't really know God. Um, and, but at the same time, I think that we aren't going to know God in some ways if we aren't also caring for those in need because that's what Jesus does. Actually, if you look at Psalm 40, the very end of Psalm 40 is that the Lord considers me when I'm needy. And then Psalm 40 begins with, the blessed man considers the poor. So it's, it's very interesting to see. And here's the other thing. So Psalm 41 is the end of book one. And it says, blessed is the one who considers the poor. Well, it's, it's a bookend to the beginning of Psalms, which in Psalm one is, blessed is the man who loves God's word. So we're to love God's word and care for the poor. And actually, if you compare Psalm one and two with Psalm 41, there's all sorts of, you could do that this afternoon as like a, a Bible study. It's, there's all sorts of parallels between the, the beginning and end of Psalm book one. Yeah, and then verse 11, we'll close here, but verse 11, by this, but this I know you delight in me. And so I think that those two things, you put the blessed is the one who considers the poor, which is the idea of study, like mm-hmm. not just, oh, I'm going to think about them occasionally, but I'm going to study to see yeah. how I can serve them. Uh, and that's been interesting, just like as a church and everybody's wearing masks and that kind of stuff. I've had people uh, message me on Facebook saying, hey, thanks for doing that. I ha- I'm not able to come yet. But there's a lot of churches where I don't feel considered because I'm health compromised. Mm-hmm. And so that consideration, that studying of the poor and going, what can we do to serve yeah. someone, you know, um, and consider. I feel considered. And yeah. so I appreciate that. And it's opened yeah. up avenues of ministry. So, um, so in, in feeling betrayal or feeling difficulty, to consider someone else, it has an orienting effect yeah. to your own. Yeah. And then... Um, that you delight in me, knowing that my justification comes from the finished work of Christ. You know, so regardless of what anyone does to me or says to me or whatever, I'm accepted by Christ mm-hmm. and I delight in Him. So I think those two things, in the middle of of suffering and in the middle of um, of betrayal, to go, let me get my eyes into serving someone else, or else I'll fall into a pit of what I'm losing, what I'm not getting. Yeah, and then also going. I am justified by Jesus and not mm-hmm. by what this person says or thinks or whatever, but I am justified by the blood of Christ and he delights in me. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so I think there's those, those would be two things that I am reconciled to God through Christ and so I can go through any suffering or betrayal and let me pour that, let me consider someone who might be overlooked, who might be being run over, who might yeah. not be considered. Yeah. And... Um, I think that has an orienting effect to our souls. So, yeah, yeah, anyway, absolutely. My mini sermon, but let's close today. Thank you, Justin. Yeah. I really appreciate that. That felt like that came from the heart. Um, I mean, I always appreciate every time you preach, but I felt that one felt like uh, like it came from your heart. So I appreciate that. I would encourage you to check out redeeminggrace.info and connect with us in some way. Leave us a prayer request. Connect with us. Register for next Sunday's gathering. Um, and then text, uh, join RGC to 297000. There's not a lot going on, but we've got a lot of things that we're thinking and planning towards. And so um, um, we uh, just uh, encourage you to engage in that way. And uh, don't run off too quickly. You can fellowship kind of out in the, in the uh, courtyard out there. I uh, would encourage you to meet somebody. If you need someone to pray with you, I'll be here. I'm sure Justin will be here as well. We would love to hear what's going on and pray with you. Um, let's wait to tear down for just a few minutes just because we want to give time for interaction and thank you for being here.
Uh, our benediction this morning, if you'd please stand for our benediction. I love this, Zephaniah 3.17. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. The Lord delights in us through Christ. May we be encouraged by that. May you think on that this week. God bless you. You're dismissed. Thank you for listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org.